Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. If you're ready, we'll get underway. Anytime you are. Okay. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is aesthete, raconteur, impresario, bon vivant, cognoscenti, recusant, enfant terrible, Eddie Elfenbein. He's the proprietor of the Crossing Wall Street blog, and he's also the portfolio manager for the CWS ETF. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Eddie. How are you? Great. How are you? Great. I love that description that you have in your Twitter bio. I was going to suggest some additional words that you could throw in there too. So I've got ingenue, linguist, boulevardier, flaneur, libertine, entrepreneur, investor, and blogger. You didn't mention that one. That's that's true. I didn't mention the, the important ones I left out. So. The most important ones. <laughs> um, you've been writing your blog since 2006, so, so you're one of the one of the longest lived bloggers um, that I can find. Uh, there are others who started before you, but they, they gave the game away a lot earlier. So I always think of the cheap stocks blog, John Heller. He may, be, uh-huh. he, he may have been there four years before you, but I, I don't think anybody else has survived as long. Uh, I think Barry Ritholtz. Barry Ritholtz, before, yeah. Still, still going strong. I think, I think very narrowly in terms of the value guys who are, who are picking stocks, but that's, that's exactly right. I always say that value is a very broad church. Uh, how do you characterize your own style? I really don't think of myself as a value investor, and I'm not overly worried about those characterizations. I just I look for for good stocks at good prices, and wherever that takes me, that takes me. So sometimes I'll get something that would be by conventional metrics overpriced. Sometimes by conventional metrics underpriced. Uh, I like to sort of uh, remain nimble that way, and I don't want to. I don't think it's necessary to. Uh, box myself in by a factor model. So when you're uh, deciding whether you put a stock into the portfolio or not, are you? Do you undertake a valuation? I do. Yeah. I, so I will. I will look at it, and and I mean, it's always within context of what I what I think the uh, the company is capable of, where historically it's been uh, uh, capable of. So yeah, I I always want to take you know the valuation in mind but it has to be done within the context of other variables and you, you don't characterize that as that, that that doesn't that's not buffett style value investing you don't think of it as that way i i, I mean if somebody wants to call it that way that's fine I, I don't i don't worry about it if it's you know i do what i do and whatever whatever people want to call it uh that's what they do i i, I don't think i don't think investors need to worry about that to need to uh uh, uh waste any time uh, I just focus on what what the company is doing and where the price is. So you have formed a portfolio for uh, the Crossing Wall Street blog about once a year since two thousand and six. Uh, could you talk us through the process? How do you how do you come up with the names? How does that happen? Sure. Well, basically, one of the things I wanted to do with the blog was to show people that they could be. Uh, good investors by following some basic strategies. And basically the idea is that a lot of people want to make investing far more complicated than it really is. And I wanted to show people that it is possible to do well in the stock market. And I, I wanted to say, I'll even go the extra effort. What I'll say is, here's a buy list for the coming year. And I'll give you a group of stocks of 25 stocks. And I won't make a single change through the entire year, 
and let's see how we do. I, in the, we won't get bogged down by trading. We, we won't get bogged down by the emotions of it. We'll just choose these names and watch how they do. So that's sort of how it started. I wanted to show people that you can do well. And, and I've start, I actually started with 20 stocks. We expanded it to 25. And each year, we add five names and we delete five names. So we just do a changeover of 20%. Which actually, in 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 terms of the real S and P five hundred, it's not that far out from what the actual uh, S and P five hundred does. It's around five to seven percent in that area. Some years it's it's more, some years it's less. So we're just always you know keeping that twenty percent turnover. Another important thing about that turnover is it means that the average stock on the portfolio will be uh, owned for five years. So it forces me to sit down and say, when I choose this stock, I want to say, Eddie, are you comfortable owning this stock uh, for an average, not making any changes for the next five years? A lot of people think it's like a, um, a hindrance. It's, it's a, something, a, a, a cross I have to bear. I actually find it very liberating because it focuses your mindset on what the company will be doing over the long term, what where their strengths are, will there be lasting? So it, it's a change of mindset, and I think it really helps me in my stock selection process. So I've I've heard uh, you describe your process before as you track around seventy or eighty stocks. That's right. And then how, how do you how do you narrow down from your list of seventy or eighty to decide which ones go in the portfolio? Yeah. So I have a watch list of around seventy stocks. I'm all constantly adding and deleting names, things that I find interesting. These are companies that I'm aware of, but I don't want to say I follow. I can't sort of go into a detail about them. But I know generally I consider these good stocks. They they passed the mustard. Sometimes the list gets up to about a hundred names, which is too big, and so then I'll 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 bring it back. I think of this as kind of the minor leagues for the buy list. And I'll basically, I'll keep an eye on stocks that I think are a, a, a exceptionally good. And at the time, I make uh, changes to the buy list that look like they're going for a good price. So it's basically, you know, it's it's the farm system. Uh, and, and I want to see what's uh, what's been brewing. Uh, and what I like, and, and if I like it, then I'll, I'll call it up uh, and bring it to the major leagues. Sorry for the baseball reference for non-baseball <laughs> fans. <laughs> well, what, what qualifies a stock for the minor leagues, and how does it then progress into the majors? I'll, I'll give you a good example. And this is a stock uh, I, I was just uh, r r reading about, and, and a stock that was on the buy list, and I unfortunately sold. You can't worry about this, but it was a company called uh, Heiko. It's H-E-I-C-O. Ticker symbol is H-E-I. And it's a fascinating company. What they do is they make aircraft parts, replacement aircraft parts. And it's a very interesting business because I'm sure not one in person in 10,000 ever thinks about this. But it's a, it, it, and it's an interesting because it's a small cap stock. Not many people follow it. And it's a niche play. So let's say you are you know, an airline company or transportation company, you have a bunch of airplanes and a, and a part breaks on your airplane, something in the rotor, something in the engine. You can't head over to Pet Boys to get this part. You can't get this replacement part. You, they just don't do it. Uh, and you don't want to get a whole new plane. You don't want to go to the original manufacturer. And so you turn to Heiko. And they make the replacement part and they can make a knockoff of it. So it won't be perfect, but it's basically it can get the job done. And it's all you always want to be in a business where uh, they say, well, just pay the man, <laughs> you know, and that you're kind of you, you, you I don't want to say you're forced. It's not a monopoly, but it's kind of a, a pseudo monopoly. They have a very strong market niche. In many ways, I think of it as similar in uh, the dynamics of a generic drug maker that uh, they, they sort of make the knockoff that gets the job done. Heiko is a, is a great company, you know, and I also like that nobody knows about it. It's not well known. And it was on the buy list and it did very, very well for us. Excuse and me. That's okay. Uh, and and it, uh, it, it, it did very well for us and I thought it was too pricey. And so I, I, I cut it from the buy list 
sure enough, it's just gone up and up since then. Now, it's just one of these things. Um, it's natural to kick yourself and say, oh, I made a mistake. You can't do that. You have to let it go and realize that, you know, uh, you, you'll you'll tie yourself up in knots thinking about the ones uh, that you could have made a better uh, uh, investment on. But it does. I am human. And so it does uh, d- does aggravate me. I would love to see Heiko. Now, this is a good example. So it's gone from uh, the uh, from the watch list to the buy list, and now it's back on the watch list. So I would love to see Heiko's share price drop significantly, and so I could add it back. That would that would be great news. So that's a good example of how uh, I, the interplay between stocks I watch, and, and uh, I also brought up, I believe, FactSet, which just reported earnings this week. They were on the buy list, then they went off the buy list and went to the watch list, and I added, they're up about 50% this year for us, and uh, they just had a, a good earnings report. I think that if they pulled back a little, so it's probably in the mid 40s. We're not even halfway through the year. So, and and I I, I have no problem bringing back names uh, that former buy list names because I, I know something about them and I can vouch for them. And it's probably just a valuation story. So I have no problem, you know, a company that just is uh, is a is a bit uh, undervalued. You know, it's overvalued. Get rid of them. They're undervalued. Bring them right back. Heiko is very, very richly valued, but uh, but a wonderful, uh, wonderful company. Is it fair to say that you're a business analyst and you're looking for firms that are going to grow earnings over the over the five years that you plan on holding them? Yeah, I, I, I would I would I would say so. Um, you know, there are a lot of different names that people use for this, like. Um, uh, uh, <clears throat> Like investment moats, uh, Warren Buffett uses that term. Uh, companies that have some sort of competitive advantage that uh, keeps. There's a few characteristics. Usually, they have uh, strong operating margins. That's that's what I look for. Uh, companies where what they say the high switching costs. Heiko, a good example. It really hits that. That companies that you can go somewhere else, but you know why do it? It's it's kind of a pain for you. So you want to be. Uh, stay with them. Usually they have a lot of uh, ability to raise prices. Uh, they, they have the uh, uh, cost efficiency, um, even if they're not exploiting that uh, to, to the most. That's always good to see. Uh, and usually this, this is, I want to make it clear, this is a, um, a generality. So it's not always true. But when companies get into trouble, Usually a bad balance sheet and bad fundamentals are a manifestation of the bad of a bad business. Uh, and people get that vice versa. So you can have a strong business that's done in by a poor balance sheet. But what's ahead of the balance sheet, what's ahead of all the financial metrics is the business. And it's almost always a reflection of what's going on in the underlying business. For some reason, the customer base has, has soured on the product. So then you see some financial weakness that will you lead to over indebtedness as they're trying to mask the system. So it's a good example that people confuse the mechanics of the market for what the market really is. So as you said, I like to be a business analyst, focus on what the company is doing. Are they serving their markets in a positive way? So while you don't describe yourself as a value investor, you are still exercising some value discipline, though, because you said that Heiko became too expensive for you. So how do you? Can you just walk us through that process? Yeah, I mean, basically, a lot of it's just judgment. I mean, I I, I want to, uh, you know, when I'm looking at something that's forty or fifty times earnings, I ask, you know, we we know that there's just mean reversion among multiples. Uh, maybe we'll have a higher mean, but we realize that in a year, so much of your uh, profit has not been through profits, but through margin expansion. And you just have to understand that that is not lasting that and that will come uh, back and and will bite. So it's always great to to have multiple expansion uh, with, you know, when valuation gets richer on a cheap stock. You just have to realize that you can't last uh, last that forever as to uh, there's not some magic formula 
that decides what what the fair price is. It really is. It's a judgment call. And I try to my my uh, rule is I, I look at as many numbers as possible, but I don't I'm not uh, absolutely obedient to a single one. I follow all I can. and I try to make it my judgment from there. It's funny because one of the most popular uh, or one of your favorite articles on your site is the world's simplest valuation measure. <laughs> and and to be fair, I, I say that that's a first, uh, um, you know, that, that that's a uh, kind of a screening method. But yeah, I, I, I put that up there. And what I did was I actually, I, w- I, w- I was working on a very, very complicated valuation method. And then what I wanted to do was find out if I could get a quick and easy shortcut to what those numbers were. And so that's what, what I what I came up with was my uh, easiest uh, valuation method. I always find that people, when, when I say that it's dangerous to because people w- want to know exactly precise down to the uh, to the half penny what what a price should be, where I say, don't worry, don't worry so much about that. Ideally, you know, I want to own a stock for, you know, an average of five years, maybe uh, 10 or 15 years. So a lot of those valuation things will fade over time. And you really are investing in the uh, the underlying uh, strength of the company. What certainly worked for you, the uh, the returns to your portfolio since inception in total cumulative compounded 211% versus 164% for the S&P. But in, in addition to that, I think that the what I have observed is that your your stock prices tend to be quite smooth, that the return for the portfolio is quite smooth. It doesn't seem to draw down much. It seems to perform quite well. What, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I think I, I like to focus on high-quality stocks. And so that is... Uh, you, you, you could get a, a lot of uh, you know smart guy. I think like you know Wes Gray and all these people who do factor investing. I say, well, that I'm I'm in, I'm riding the uh, the high quality factor, and I, and I'm sure I am. So that 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 does affect uh, the portfolio. Again, I'm not trying to do that. I just go for things I like. So those factors are clearly manifest in the market. When a market breaks, we don't go down as much. Our, uh, and then our beta on the upside, we don't go up as much. I think we're in bull markets. We're we're pretty competitive with the market. We're actually beating the market again this year. But we really have made our bones in down markets where we've had outperformed pretty significantly. And and, and that, that's something a lot of people have to understand that uh, beta is not necessarily symmetrical. Uh, and, and we really saw that actually in May. Uh, of this year that we had some of our strongest outperformance in the history of the buy list. So it is, it is, if you want to say it's a closet, uh, uh, high quality factor fund, I'm sure it is. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, try to do that, but yeah, I I think that's probably a fair description. That's possibly the outcome rather than the objective and the, the exactly. The objective is to find high margins, high switching costs in the business at some reasonable price that you, mm-hmm. that you can justify. And then the performance is whatever the performance happens to be. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, but by the way, I, I would say a, a lot of people, I think, underestimate uh, the world of factor investing. I've never put this down. I, I, I'll, I'll put this across to listeners because I think it's important, but also I'll stress that I haven't done the quantitative research, but I would say if a portfolio, any portfolio or index gets large enough, it's very likely capturing a small group of factors, being value or growth or cyclical stocks or high quality stocks. I actually think that the list is is smaller than people realize. And you're getting those factors or an alloy of a small group of factors. It's a very sophisticated point. I don't think a lot of uh, investors understand how true that is. Now, and, and I have to underscore this by saying that is once portfolios reach a significant size. So you can perfectly, if you have a small portfolio of, of smaller cap stocks, you can easily sail around these factors. I'm just saying once it gets larger enough, you are almost by definition drawn to be a factor investor at some level. I'm glad that you made that point because that's one that I make a lot that whether you recognize it or not, 
you have some uh, you you do have some factor exposure in your strategy, and you should at least understand which one you are tracking mm-hmm. to. And, and those factors correlate with other things, you know, interest rates. So you can certainly see that if some risk factor in the market, you'll see that in high yield spreads. They'll be closely uh, right and and will correlate with maybe macroeconomic factors. Again, we're talking about the relative to performance of the fund. That's something else a lot of people sometimes have difficulty wrapping their heads around. But so, um, you know, uh, uh, Trotsky said, um, uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. The same goes for factor investing. You may not think you're a factor invest investor, but you are, and you can't avoid it. Well-known uh, value investor Trotsky. Yeah, Leon Trotsky. That's right. Uh, yeah, that, you didn't think you would get a Trotsky quote in this. I, uh, I didn't. Oh, that was podcast. that's a good one. I'm glad. I haven't heard Trotsky quoted in a lot of value letters, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to the you know to the to the detriment of those letters. Uh, it's a it, it is a strategy that is remarkably Buffett like, uh, even even if you don't characterize it that way. How it how, how do you come to be how do you come to invest that way? What were you doing before you were a blogger in two thousand six? Uh, well, let's see. I um I was working for an uh, investment company, a newsletter company in Potomac, so pu- putting out uh, investment newsletters. Um, I really you know, enjoyed that that job, and it, and it was a lot of fun. I got, I got to work with some well-known investors. If people out there know uh, Louis Navalier, as his uh, funds based in Nevada, learned a lot from Louis. And I just wanted to strike out on my own. I read all these uh, uh, blogs, mostly in the political sphere. I was reading Barry Ritholtz, um, and I think it was about mid-2005 that I started posting and um, it was a great time to do it. I remember Joe Weisenthal, he started blogging and then some other really high quality blogs came along and it was a, a very you know small group and it was a lot of fun. And then it's sort of not long after that, uh, the world collapsed. And um, I think in, in the later Twitter uh, sphere and blogging is a great tool and medium for investing you can follow really really smart people the news and dissemination gets um filtered very quickly you can hear uh different opinions i remember early on the wall street journal ran an article that i thought was very unfair they said it was about how um companies there were uh insiders who board members at companies and they got their stock options and they could change the date at which they got the stock options. And that's fairly standard. It's not outrageous. I mean, some places it's banned. But the um, – uh, and what they did is after 9-11, the, a lot of people went and they backdate – they changed the date after the market plunged. And the Wall Street Journal wrote an article and it said these were people who were profiting off 9-11. I thought that was a very unfair characterization. And I was able to write about it, and I had to sit down to people and say, "Okay, let me explain." Even if you're if you're not familiar with these concepts, these terms, this the, their their description of the events is is not fair at all. Before you really don't didn't have a an outlet to do that. You could write a letter to the editor, and maybe it's published. But if it's critical, they they may not. And I, I remember uh, I felt really a sense of liberation that I could put my thoughts out there. Nobody could block it. And I thought I was adding something important to the debate. And I remember that was sort of a, a key moment where I thought that the blogging really could add something to a public debate on an issue. Was that, was that a widely, was that on Crossing Wall Street? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think it got around. There were people who, uh, I remember, uh, Barry, uh, Ritholtz, who I, I admire greatly. I remember he he disagreed. He was in a very high dungeon, but there were some other people who who agreed uh, with me. I mean, you know, there's always things. If you're not arguing, you're not not having fun. <laughs> so if you're not arguing, you're not blogging. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, one of the one of the more popular posts on your blog is why return on equity is so important. So I, I have a. Uh, 
I have some views on return of e- on on equity, but I'd like to hear wh- why is return on equity so important? Yeah. So let me preface by by saying there are problems with all financial metrics, and just be aware of them. But uh, I I was trying to say invest investors always sort of want to run want to run after something at the at, at the detriment of all others. And I said, return on equity is a fascinating, it, it, it's sort of the gold standard of financial metrics because you're getting the most pure, um, you know, uh, uh, three lumps go in, two lumps come out. What, what is uh, per unit of X, what kind of return are you getting? And that is really the essence of what finance, you want to look at the efficiency in its purest form. Now, again, there can be problems. Let's say you have a uh, real estate on the books that's not properly uh, valued. Well, that can completely throw. Let's say you invest in a minority uh, uh, stake in a company and that stock goes through the roof. Well, that's going to increase your your equity base. So, Or uh, in a certain year, you're going to have a, a tax benefit or a tax penalty. All those things are going to uh, distort uh, your your uh, return on equity. If you have uh, in, uh, in inflationary periods, will distort your your inventory. Uh, disinflationary will, will have an impact on well. But the idea, the thinking of return on on equity, it focuses the mind of investors saying, "Is this is how much I'm putting in? This is how much I'm getting out." In many ways, people understand bonds because it has yield to maturity. And I think of, you know, try to put your stock into a yield to maturity. Uh, the, again, it's it's an intellectual exercise, but I but I like uh, doing that because it, it again, it, it it's it's telling investors um, and, and I've worked at, at retail brokerage and people say, I want something around 20, 25 dollars per share. <laughs> Get away from that kind of thinking. And there's a company behind that share price find out what they're doing, find out what, what they're about. I agree with you that um, return on equity is the singular measure for determining uh, the quality or the, the worth of the business that you're looking for. And I always say that cash flow return on equity is the only, or cash flow return on invested capital is the only metric that you should be using. But if you are going to use that metric, the very next step, the immediate step after that, you have to work out how sustainable that return on equity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And that's why. Sorry. You're exactly right. Also, I believe uh, I I have a a post on this that a lot of studies have shown that um, enterprise value divided by EBITDA or uh, that backwards, that's been the best measurement. But I I wouldn't get bogged down by the differences. They're all sort of getting at the same thing. Um, and, and as far as sustainability, it's exactly right. And that's why a lot of the companies I go for on the buy list are sort of these tried and true, you know, Hershey is on there. I feel pretty confident, you know, there's a company called Hershey, Pennsylvania. There's, uh, there's no company in America that that's uh, you know uh, uh, keto or you know uh, low sugar. There's no no company town named after that, uh, but there is a Hershey, Pennsylvania. You, you realize that chocolate will be around. Well, ch- chocolate's an interesting one that I thought about a little bit too because Buffett's own career is an interesting discussion, as an interesting illustration of that idea. And that you know he made his first arbitrage money buying the. When Jay Pritzker was liquidating the chocolate factory, that is that the name of which escapes me now, that you could Buffett could take the shares and receive the cocoa beans uh, because Pritzker had found some tax loophole that allowed him to get some advantage by doing that, and then Buffett would take the cocoa beans and deposit them at some sort of place where you could deposit the commodities, and there was a little arbitrage, and he could make money doing that. And Pritzker had clearly set that up purposefully to encourage people to do that. But that was in a period where there weren't really very many branded chocolate bars. They didn't really exist. It's a more recent phenomenon. And then, of course, Buffett's next famous investment is C's, which he buys right. because it has that great brand. And mm-hmm. that's really been the, the engine room of Berkshire Hathaway, in addition to the insurance and various other things. But it's thrown off so much money. Even if he hadn't deployed it very well, he'd still be very, very wealthy and would have done well. 
I think C's has been, it's a small position in the empire, but I think as far as overall performance, it's been one of the best. Right. And it's thrown off an enormous amount. It's, you know, $27 million investment that in 2011 had thrown off $1.35 billion in cash flow that however you've invested that even back into the S&P 500, you've done extraordinary, he would have done extraordinarily well, combine that with his additional investments. That's why he's Buffett. Yeah, but, but it's one of those. Things, I think we're at possibly we're at a turning point where the brands become less relevant, and maybe you you say to yourself, "I want sixty percent cacao. I'm going to go and buy Amazon sixty percent cacao because I am keto." And maybe brands become less relevant. I I'm, I have I heard people talk about that. I, I think it's very possible. But you know, th- then you wonder: is the brand expressed in a different way? Because what it, it's a level you're you're signaling to uh, consumers, I'm okay, I'm good. You know, you, you can be driving, you know, with small kids across the country in an area of the country you don't know very well. You see golden arches, you know exactly what you're getting. And so even if the brands, they, use, they lose their cachet as, as the name, it could be, you know, maybe through Yelp reviews or something like that. There's always gonna be a mechanism where a company can say to people, we're okay. You're okay coming to us. Um, I don't know. I don't know how, how that will express itself. Uh, just to change gears slightly, one of, uh, uh, one of the most interesting posts, I think, on your site is the Elf and Bean theory to explain the stock market. <laughs> Could you give us the theory? Sure, sure. Uh, basically, this, this dovetails back with what I was talking about, the, the, the factor investing. And what I'm trying to say is, and I... I um, Again, these are it's a generality, but I was saying that uh, the stock market is overwhelmingly uh, driven by, uh, uh, well, I can call it four factors, but it's really two factors, the positive and negative. And it's the direction of short-term interest rates and the direction of long-term interest rates. You look at the stock market on ev- any given day, it usually follows into uh, one of four patterns, and it's with if the um, short-term interest rates go up or down, then you know there's a very you know kind of standard falling out of how uh, different industries will do energy stocks versus you know financials versus you know consumer stocks, and the same thing with long-term interest rates, how those will uh, will in fact again a generality. When long-term interest rates move, that's usually a reflection of the broader macroeconomic environment. When the short-term interest rates move, that's more of the financial, what the Fed is doing, and inflationary aspects. So there's overlap between the two, but they're not exactly two. Now, if you think about these two factors going back and forth, you, you can put that on a scatter plot, and then you get a quadrant. So you can have Short-term interest rates going down, long-term interest rates going down, one up, one down, and both going up. So, and and you know, implied in that is the um, so you basically have uh, interest rates going up, interest rates going down, or then you have the yield curve widening or flattening is uh, it, it are the two opposing uh, quadrants. I'm trying to draw it in the air right here. (laughs) And I think a lot of uh, investing breaks down into that. And, you know, these are, I think these are the factors that rule over everything else. I think a lot of the small cap factors, that's probably not such a big factor. And uh, I'm sure a lot of it is hard to disentangle from these larger factors. So getting back to the short term and long term, basically, the short term, uh, when those interest rates move, it's a value or growth. When the long term rates move, it's a cyclical versus defensive. Uh, and you can see just uh, most given days in the market, it's a battle between those. There's lots and lots of uh, outliers. Not everything follows that exactly. But I think those are the larger um, mega trends that uh that govern the market so i hope i i uh, i preface that with a number of qualifications but i think it i think it is important and i think that that's how how the market uh, uh i think it must follow those return those uh that system 
And you, you follow that more out of interest rather than to inform the way that you invest. Right. I mean, I don't think it's worth it to, to make a, uh, um, like, for example, I'm asked why I don't have any energy stocks on the portfolio and people want to know, is that my view of um, global geopolitical outlook? No, not at all. I just don't, I didn't see any, anything uh, at that time. I, I think I have a, a post, is that a lot of people, they see investing incorrectly as um, top down instead of bottom up. So people want to know, oh, Trump is going to do this. Oh, China is going to do that. And the Federal Reserve is going to do that. Yeah, those are important. But Heiko is going to be Heiko. You know, Microsoft is going to be Microsoft. That is far more important. Uh, I think there's a, a natural energy for people who want to go, I mean, I get this in my, uh, you know, Twitter stream, uh, the, the the market, you know, when is Trump finally going to ruin the market? Uh, what, what, you know, what is this tr trade stuff and the tax cut? Obviously, and it's like it just doesn't work that way. So it, it's the don't don't worry about the top down. It's the investing from 30,000 feet. Basically, you're talking about the Fed. You're talking about politics. You're talking about international talk about the margins at at uh fact set that's far more important i know peter lynch said you know if you want to be investing in a car company you should be reading the wall street journal you should be reading road and track and car and driver that's what you should be reading with all of that preface i'm still going to ask you do you have do you do you ever think about the value of the market does that uh enter it do you think it's high or low or do you you don't consider it at all um, only at extremes like, you know, in, in, in 2000, but I, I usually, I don't ha I don't talk about it a lot because I just don't have anything interesting to say about it, uh, about, I, 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 I don't think it's, it's terribly important. And in fact, as far as the buy list goes, I actually, w with our outperformance, um, uh, I don't mind when uh, when the stock market pulls back uh, because I can get uh, values and I know we're usually going to outperform. Uh, I really I don't have much worthwhile to say about the broader markets valuation. Uh, if I if I did, I'd say it. Uh, but I don't talk about, you know, my expertise on Alaskan wines either. I just don't have anything <laughs> to add. Uh, one of the interesting posts on your site, you have a you do have a, a, a model for gold, though. Yeah, that 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 was uh, I probably have gotten the greatest impact, greatest feedback from this. And a lot of people who get into gold get very, very into gold. And I thought that gold was a challenging topic because I don't think there's it was a clear way to model the price. So I wanted to uh, roll up my sleeves and take a stab at it. And what's important is sort of goes back to the ROE. You want to identify the key factors that you're looking at. And with gold, the key factor is not inflation, but the key factor is real interest rates. Once you get that, then I think everything else falls into place. So that was my factor. Uh, my, my, my model was based on that. And, and, I, and, and I wanted to tie that to gold. Now, some of it, I did some um, reverse engineering. And so I took the results and tried to work backwards. So not entirely kosher, but I do believe that I, you know, a lot of these, you can be off by a little, but as long as you get the fact, the idea, you know, stocks, it's, it's the net present value of all future cash flows. That's all it is. If it's ROE, if it's EV, but EBITDA, a lot of that, you know, those are rounding errors. You want to get to what it's at and find out why the company is doing that. With gold, I got to the direction of real short-term interest rates. And in my view is that there's sort of a, uh, a level of, of short-term of, uh, short interest rates, and this has been, uh, the, uh, the Fed talks about this as the R, R star in recent Fed discussions, the Wixellian rate, people have been uh, have taken an economics class. If the real short-term interest rates is above the uh, the natural rate, then gold will fall down. If it's below that, then gold will rise. It's sort of it's sort of that's basically the idea of the gold model. But uh, I, I wrote that a couple of years ago, and you know every month I'll get a couple of emails about it. 
Well, I was wondering if you tracked it since you since you proposed. I haven't. I I mean, I did it a couple times, but uh, I, I I haven't recently. And I I, I kind of felt like um, I've said everything I've had to say about gold, and so I'll let that. In in fact, that that uh, there have been a couple economic papers. At, written at university and and the the footnote is my blog post on it uh and and i you know i i go into some some detail about what it is it's a fun topic and, and i like the idea of trying to crack the code and you know maybe i didn't get it exactly but i think i got it at in principle what what impacts uh the gold market and then people will say well what do you think gold will do well, I put these other variables in, so it really doesn't, I'd have to, what I'm saying is I'd have to predict those variables. It's the same thing. So I, I wouldn't predict gold. I wouldn't predict uh, those variables as well. All right. Enough macro torture. Let's go back to uh, talking, talking Let's the stock do it. market. Uh, we touched on this very briefly. One of your posts, you were talking about EV EBITDA as being the single best metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly that falls out of the Lofren paper. Or some other research. Yes, yeah, there, it's, it's some research on that has said that. You, you, uh, you're not incorporating that into your model either. You're that's just uh, you're just observing that that is exactly has been as because... I said is you know you, you, it, it it's any measure of efficiency. L- let me go back. Like I, I'm a sports fan, and you look at all these uh, you know numbers that that, that measure sports performance. Uh, some are better, some are worse. Sometimes you know, they forget, well, what is the player trying to do? I mean, you know, trying to, you know, you, you don't want your center to take a bunch of three-point shots. But as you're getting, you know, anything that's correlated to good things is going to be correlated to better performance. And so that's why ROE, you're getting efficiency, uh, PE ratio, it's going to do well as some larger, larger study because you're getting to the nub of things. EV, EBITDA, same thing. You're all you're getting to uh, you know, su- superior performance. You're getting to this level of a, of efficiency. As long as you're in that, you're always going to be in the ballpark. But you, but the investor has to take it. Don't mistake the ratio for the answer. You want to find out why the company is getting those numbers. This is a good example. People mistake the mechanics for the market. For the market itself, you'll hear people say, oh, the market is being driven by share buybacks or the Federal Reserve. Those things, you know, are important, but that's not the market. The market is always going to be on corporate profits, the net present value of all future cash flows. That's what it's about. There's company making those profits. Find out what why they're doing it. Uh, One of your answer you, I I ran ran wild. Yeah, it was great. Any answer is the right answer. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just interested in how you think about these things. So if we talk about uh, individual companies, how how does one go about spotting fraud? That That is a very uh, good question. And it's one of these things, you're never going to be 100%. Um, I want to look for companies that I trust. Uh, that's why I look for a good track record. Um, I look for uh, consistency. I generally like uh, dividends is a good example. You you can uh, mask earnings. Once you know about accounting, it's really frightening how much uh, leeway companies can do, what they call cash flow, what they call uh, different things. But a dividend, you know what a dividend is. If they're sending you cash money, you you can rely on that. And so companies that have long records of increasing their dividends, the di- so-called dividend or risk rates. That's always a good thing. I look for management that's been around for a long time. That's always good. I also like um, when you read different earnings reports or you listen to different conference calls, there are companies that are pretty straightforward. Aflac, I'm a big fan of Aflac. It's run by the uh, Amos family of Georgia. It's all the uncles and cousins, and they've been doing this. They're very upfront about what they do. They you know, say, this is going to be a good quarter. This is going to be a bad quarter. Um, I remember when the Fukushima earthquake and are you going to have problems with it? Is this bad? You know, so much of their business is in Japan. They said, look, this is what we plan for. You know, Monday morning at nine o'clock, we have very smart people thinking about what's the worst that can happen. We plan for this. So this disaster, we're ready. 
And that goes a long way with me saying these are, are companies that I can trust. I have a lot of faith in. And then you see, oh, God, there's so much crap out there. People will ask me, what do you think of this pink sheet stock? I think like 97% of pink sheets. There's no, I mean, if you're serious about your investing, you're not going to be listed on the pink sheets. So to get back, there's no perfect way to measure against fraud. Lehman Brothers, that went on. Uh, you know, and, and you know, lot, you know, lots of people didn't know, and, and Enron, all these things people uh, didn't know about. I, I didn't catch it either. Uh, but you want to go with basically companies that you have a fundamental level of trust, uh, level of trust in. So you're not looking at as as a minimum level or some particular ratio that they need to get over. You're looking for more than that. You're looking for. Do you believe in management more, more Buffett-like in that respect? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things that I've considered a lot because it's one of the things that traps investors. If you invest for long enough, you're going to get caught with some fraud just because particularly value investors, it's cheap because probably a lot of people well, have some yeah, it, idea. It's, it's cheap for a reason. Yeah. But then you find it and it looks good and you can't work out why. And, and I've been caught like that several times so we in quantitative value we looked at several um ratios and various other things that that they don't really work particularly no, i don't think any individual one although you can find examples of one of them uh capturing an capturing an enron or something like that i think they work better in concert but the one that i've always found the best is just if if there's a big accrual on the balance mm-hmm, sheet sure. that, that can't yeah. be explained i think that that uh that's a pretty big red flag and, and that was something that showed up in joseph a bank i don't know if you followed that very closely at all no i i, I do i do remember that that was on the bylaws years ago and i i did get rid of it uh i think at a good time um i'll have to, I'll have to check but i know it was on the bylaws many years ago it's extremely hard to tell though because you get the argument from uh from the company that the reason that they have this big suit inventory is because men like to buy this walk in buy the suit instantly you know the explanation was pretty good too so it was sure. a hard one to to pick up well, i think you know the thing about fraud is you know uh you know we asked them and they said no <laughs> you know they're actively right. trying to hide it from you so they can you know that that's that's the whole idea so uh i, I you know i'm not uh you know there there are people out there who are you know forensic accountants you know, there'll, there'll be some way, you know, I know, for example, Tesla has a great deal of interest and people go right to the county office where you have to submit the plans for buildings. So this is nothing. I mean, think about that level that they're, they're just going in just to see if Tesla has filed anything and they changed. They had some tents or some like structure on their property and they filed with the county to extend that. And people ran and got that info, and you know, more power to them. But you know, I'm I'm not so you know with Hershey, I'm okay. I don't I don't need that level of info. I I trust I trust the company. I think Tesla's one of the more interesting examples out there because the two camps are so certain that they are right, and I think that they've both got very good arguments. The longs are right that the car is uh, an object of desire, that the demand for it seems to be almost unlimited at a premium price that's a great business but then the shorts focus on the balance sheet look at the balance sheet looks weak and as you were describing your process and the behavior of some people in the company something to to be desired but then again you would expect that he would he is uh he has a 20 billion dollar fortune he's done several incredible things including shooting rockets into space making a lot of money at a very young age on the and so on it's uh, setting up a car company in what has been an incredibly competitive hard market to compete in but Mm -hmm. as you were describing before uh Good businesses don't have these problems with their balance sheet. I I wanted to ask you about Tesla. Then, so do you have any? Do you have any further thoughts? Well, the the thing is, I I, I can't say I have any deep knowledge of the company any more than, than it's out there. I'm always leery of companies like this. Uh, there were in the 1920s, I believe there were 400 U.S. car companies, and for many decades we talked about the big three. So just because you are in an embryonic industry doesn't mean you will be the winner. As I tell people, if you ask somebody in the early 80s, I think computers are going to be really big. Uh, What should I invest in? 
you would have been told uh, Deck. Uh, you would have told Wang. You would have been told IBM. That's what to invest in. Probably didn't work out that great. IBM has done a little bit better, but they certainly had their problems along the way. So Correct answer we'll, is probably Intel. Right, right. But you had or, to know, you know that with hindsight. You, you know, you or uh, would you have gotten uh, uh, Yahoo uh, before Google? Google came later. Uh, very often, you know, what's the saying is the second mouse gets the cheese. Uh, and you see that uh, very often. Uh, the Havilland Comet, that uh, that won the race of getting the uh, jet service. Didn't work out in the long run. Uh, Boeing uh, took that. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not impressed by uh, Mr. Musk's behavior. Also, a lot of his... I'm always suspicious of people who have acolytes and you know must can do no wrong to people. Whenever I, I, I criticize him, I get uh, enormous feedback on Twitter. Uh, we'll both like, get I, some I, for I, this one. Yeah, I, I, I may. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, right, for me, I, I can assure you, it's nothing is per, it, it is the most impersonal. You could be less personal when I when I say these things. I don't care if if, if uh, Elon Musk could make me a lot of money, I would have no problem with this. But I would say generally this has I, I raise a skeptical eye. Um, I, I haven't I haven't been uh, terribly impressed. people I've, I've talked to or I think who are, who are more knowledgeable have uh, have been more skeptical about uh, about Tesla. Um, I can play it either way. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about some individual names in your on your buy list. Uh, one is Broadridge that I think most investors may not have heard of, but most investors should know who they are. Great, great company. Again, it's a pseudo monopoly, uh, but they do proxy voting. And it's one of these things. It's a headache. Uh, I think they have maybe around 50 percent of market share. And it's one of those things. It's uh, it, better than a, a monopoly is a pseudo monopoly. And that that's Why what they that do uh, because they, they don't have the legal pressure of right. it. So uh, I'll give you a good example is Harley Davidson. I would say that Harley Davidson is a monopoly. Now, the government say, no, plenty of people make motorcycles. The key is Harley Davidson does not make motorcycles. Harley Davidson makes Harley Davidson's. <laughs> and they're the only one who does that. Don't ask me. Go to a Harley Davidson owner and say, oh, well, this is a motorcycle. It's not a motorcycle. It's a Harley. So to them, it's important. So are they, you know, technically, is that a monopoly? Not at all. You can get any kind of motorcycle. Lots out there. But, you know, and they, and they have the pricing pressure. Harley's actually run into some uh, uh, tr troubles uh, more recently. But basically, that, that that's the idea. It's, it's uh, uh, be better than a monopoly, one that sort of, uh, acts like one has the has the characteristics of one. That's the switching costs, pricing pressure, wide margins, usually low debt, hopefully low debt. The power of the brand. So, w what about Disney? That was one that you've had in the portfolio for a little while. It's come to life more recently. I, I actually, I'm I'm glad you had this because people always says my mistakes. And this one, I got exactly right. And I can say it was a, a, a lot of luck. I mean, I've, I've liked Disney, but I, it's a new stock I added at the beginning of this year. I think in May it was literally their best month in like 30 years. And the website Fandango is a you know movie website. I'm sure a lot of listeners would be familiar with. They came out at the beginning of this year. They listed the 10 most anticipated movies of 2019 and Disney owns seven of them. And that didn't include frozen two, which is on tap. And I have a feeling that will make some money. <laughs> and I think Charlie Munger said, you know, they're like an oil company that they can drill it out of the ground, make money off it, then bury it and drill it out again and make more money. And that really is what you understand is that every Disney movie is almost like a separate business. And there's a, a, a track that it follows of the international release going to video. It'll be streaming. And then they have 
the toys based on that. And then a big thing is getting the park ride. And as odd as this sounds, if something gets a, 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 a they announce a new park ride, there are such fans that they'll go to. So the, I believe they, they said, I hope I don't get this wrong, but the first park ride specifically about Mickey Mouse. So the thing is, they have this enormous catalog that they can still bring out of the ground and make money off again. They can always use, you know, Frozen 2. You don't have to spend money. People know what Frozen 1 is. It's just a fantastic brand name. Now, for, for the last several years, they've had a lot of problems with, with cable, with ESPN, some football ratings, some people complain about the political leanings, uh, problems at ESPN. And fortunately, the, the stock had done nothing for five years. And, uh, and so we, we got it, and we're, we, uh, I couldn't be happier with Disney this year. Great company. When uh, when you construct the portfolio, do you have any top-down consideration of how concentrated you are in any given sector? Uh, yeah, but it's not really strong. So, uh, I mean, a lot of like, I just love a lot of medical device stocks. And, you know, I got to be careful that I just won't load myself up with that. I love a lot of consumer names. So I have Church and Dwight. They make condoms for great sakes. That's not going out of business. Great company, uh, baking soda, Arm and Hammer. You know, great uh, brand name. So I'm I'm always a little leery. I don't you know some of the healthcare and the, it's a lot of those defensive names because you can just see great balance sheet. You can see these consistently rising er, uh, sales and earnings. Um, so I always I think I I have a bias in my mind to a lot of defensive names. So the cyclical names, <clears throat> it takes a greater judgment uh, when you look at the earnings line. You have to understand, yeah, they made they had a horrible year, but it was just for the economy. So you got to adjust for that. <clears throat> the one company I have, Continental Building Products, great company. They make wallboard. So you can have a boom and bust year. It's just it, it's not that. So you want to look them relative to the to the larger economic cycle. So I always I think I have an inherent bias against those names. It's very tough to do. Uh, so I, I am always cognizant about being overly concentrated in the in the consumer names uh, and some of those, uh, you know, uh, medical device names. The portfolio breakdown uh the weighting seems to be thirty percent financials. How do you? How, how do you, and and I I I think that financials are quite cheap, and I've sort of directed more money towards financials too. But what you, you're not you're not working that. How do you how do you come to that 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 weighting? I wouldn't have even known that because I just think I have I have two banks, uh, which is a, a, a signature and um what's the new one. Um, oh, Eagle Bank. Um, and so those are the pure banks. And then I have Aflac. And then there's like, you know, Pfizer, which is, you know, financial services. So I don't really think in, in the bank, pure banking, it's just it's just two. And then and, and Aflac is, is another, you know, uh, insurance. Um, but I really don't think of it in, in, in those terms. I just think of it as companies I like that are well run and have good positions. You know, I, I can't say I, I do. I do pay attention to um, larger. You know, I don't want to be crazily overweighted, but it's not a priority. Uh, your your newsletter that comes out uh, weekly. How, how do folks get signed up to that? That that's uh, ex expensive, I expect. Uh, it, it's surprisingly cheap. Uh, everybody should stop what they're doing and go and sign up for it. Just go to my website. Uh, there's an e-letter tag across the, uh, the top. And I think there should be a sign up on the side as well. And you can ju just go in it, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's free to sign up for that. And you, know, you can, you can cancel at any time. There's an unsubscribe uh, button and I, uh, send it out every Friday. I only take off on Thanksgiving and Memorial Day. Maybe I've missed a couple days. So I've been doing that since 2010. So I send that out. And um, it's just kind of uh, my thoughts. It's, it's focused on the buy list. And I'll talk about the economy and the market 
and uh so it's fun to do i i enjoy it my, my hat is off to you i think you write faster than i can read <laughs> that uh, my my only real talent is i i can i can churn out prose pretty pretty quickly and your twitter account which i think is probably one of the best ones out there thank you very much eddie at eddie elfenbein so you can uh, see me out there i think i'm around 45 50,000 followers so twitter's always fun and then of course there are lots of trolls and crazy people out there but that's what twitter is so i i, I enjoy I, I i try to understand twitter what it is but there are you you have a great uh, twitter feed uh a lot a lot of great people so you you follow great people you can really have uh learn a lot i always try to you know learn from people always there's few things are as humbling as being a professional money manager and to see yourself get slapped around and realize that your decision you know selling heiko selling microsoft was completely stupid and i'm i'm you know envious of people in other fields who can uh get away with uh saying absurd things in finance uh your your results you will get smacked around very quickly you were brought to account in uh, Thunderdome, Twitter Thunderdome. Yes. <laughs> Eddie Elfenbein, thank you very much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure.